This podcast is supported by an educational grant from CMR Surgical Limited. To learn more about CMR Surgical, please visit cmrsurgical.com. Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews that explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. Welcome back, Team Unscrubbed. It was so wonderful to see many of you a few weeks ago at our incredible annual conference, where Dr. Oz Hermanli and Dr. Carl Zimmerman put together a fantastic meeting. Dr. Sherelle Iglesia has now taken over as our fearless leader, and I know we are in the best of hands and in the highest of energy. I'm incredibly excited to welcome my good friend, Dr. Veronica Lerner, to our episode today. Dr. Lerner completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Mount Sinai Hospital, followed by a pelvic surgery fellowship at Virginia Mason Hospital in Seattle to specialize in minimally invasive surgery as well as urogynecology. This has made her well-versed in absolutely all routes of surgery. She's also internationally known for her work in surgical education as well as simulation. On today's episode, Veronica talks about mentors who have changed her trajectory, where she gets that fire in her belly for patient advocacy, and the importance of a growth mindset. We hope you enjoy. So good morning. We are so excited to have one of my truly great friends, Dr. Veronica Lerner, on our show today. I am so lucky that I just saw her this weekend when she traveled to Cleveland for our V-Notes course. She's coming in from New York City this morning. So Dr. Lerner, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It really is an honor to be here. As you know, I'm a huge admirer of everything you do. And I and this is my chance to really say thank you for being a pioneer, innovator, advocate, and a voice for so many of us. So thank you for everything you do. And this is truly an honor. Dealing a little bit with uh, an imposter syndrome here, but hopefully I'll get over it. You are such an amazing human. Believe me, imposter syndrome, you are not alone in that. I obviously have that as well. And I feel all the same accolades for you. So thank you, Veronica, for being here today. You have an amazing story. And every time I talk with you, I feel like I learn an entire new pivot point or transition that I didn't realize that you have in part of your story. So I was hoping we could start out by just talking about your journey into medicine. And how did you ultimately land as a surgeon? Yeah, it's kind of hard to tease that, right? There's so many factors that play into the formula that makes us who we are. And we're not necessarily aware of what those things are and they change as our memory changes and our experiences change, right? So it's kind of like interesting to reflect on how you get there. But um, my story is, is that medicine, so I did my uh, medical school at University of Colorado. And what really triggered, kind of piqued my interest there or really I guess got me going was my experiences at uh, the county hospital. It's Denver General Hospital in the city. And what really kind of piqued my interest or I guess um, got me going in the story is that I, I really felt strongly that as citizens, as doctors, as people, we really have to advocate for others who can't speak for themselves, right? That's kind of like, sounds silly when you put it on the air, but internally that's really what drives us. And so getting to residency at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, um, I enjoyed different aspects of learning, a new specialty. But again, what really got me going was my experience at Elmhurst Hospital. It's a city hospital, also similar to what Denver General was. Thoroughly thought um, I wanted to work with that patient population, uh, whatever the circumstances might be. And then, of course, I fell in love with surgery. So it's kind of like I joke around about sometimes with my trainees, like, 
I see future surgeon here. I'm really sorry. I'm going to break bad news to you. You love surgery. This is your destiny and you can't reroute. <laughs> I love so that. So this is kind of like how I felt and I uh, ended up doing a fellowship. And what I was looking for in a fellowship really is a diverse surgical experience. And this is really where my love for vaginal surgery comes in. I was thinking, you know, if I'm in an underserved setting, I may not have access to equipment or I might be abroad doing prolonged work there. And, and so, you know, being diverse in my routes and having diverse surgical experiences was really important for me. And this is where my fellowship choice, how my fellowship choice bled into it. And after that, and mind you, at that point, I really had zero interest in academics. Like, sure, <laughs> intellectually, I loved reading articles and journal club was fun for me. And I really enjoyed that intellectual discourse, but I never saw myself fit into that picture. So really, and again, looking back, uh, I was thinking who was like my mentor and my role model at that point. It really was Cynthia Gianfi. She's an amazing human. She was an MFM fellow when I was a resident. Right now, she's a chair um, at in San Diego. But we did a, a residency project together on cervical length and twins. It's like who in the world of surgery would ever care about an MFM project <laughs> on cervical length and twins but she made it really exciting and the scientific endeavor, anything, anything she did from statistics to why we're doing this was amazing. So that really kind of stuck with me and, and who are role models, right? It's like makes us different later in life. So she was really a huge impact on, on me. And then again, coming back to New York after my fellowship, I started working at NYU Bellevue system. And again, Bellevue, it's kind of that continuity of that's that setting of taking care of women who otherwise may not have access to care was really my driver. And then I met Miriam Kramer, who is um, also um, a big ro role model for me. She runs an NGO called uh, Basic Health and does a lot of research in cervical cancer and really under uh, sort of low settings. And so she really was a medical student who went to Latin America with some pap smear slides and really started this amazing NGO that is NIH funded right now. So. Again, working with her on research projects and going medical missions with her really made me think that, yes, you know, we can make a difference, but how would that fit in in the big picture of academics? I wasn't sure about. So that's sort of like how it started. And, and then again, um, a few years into my uh, attending life at NYU, we started building a simulation program together with a sim center that the medical center was developing. And that's when I met Damien Shield and his CMS crew. CMS, uh, Center for Medical Simulation, a Harvard think tank. Really, it's like a cult following. <laughs> um, as you know, we talked about yeah. it a lot. Um, yeah. Really revolutionized debriefing and simulation in healthcare. And really, he was the one who said, yes, you can do research, you can have an academic discourse. And even though his specialty is in team, teamwork and debriefing, he's the one who mentored me on my surgical projects. So I think this is kind of that story started. But anyway, there's more to it. But um, I don't know. It's, it's, I guess I always tell people, you never know where you're going to end up. Uh, you can have your five and 10 year plan. Um, residents and fellows, I didn't want to ask them that, but then, you know, your life is going to reroute and you just have to go with it. I love so much of that, Veronica. I want to break down so many pieces of your story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So things that stick out for me, and this is since the day that I met you. So I met you, I think for the first time when I was at Columbia doing an FMIGS boot camp, and you came in and you gave us this 
amazing course about a lot of your surgical simulation philosophies and techniques, right? Like how to debrief and how do you even create a sim and how do you do an ease assessment for this? And I was like, who is this woman <laughs> and how do I become her? So that's my first impression of you. And your story really backs that up. You know, I feel like the things that stick out are your incredible passion for teaching, surgical education and simulation, but also your incredible passion for patient advocacy. And you and I are working on a couple of things together, meaning you are spearheading it and I'm just helping support in these huge patient advocacy papers and opinion pieces. Where did this fire come from? Like, I'm just curious. I, I love your story at Denver, how you worked in the inner city population there. Is there anything earlier that that made that fire? Because you you can't make this up. You know, you, you've got it like deep in your in, in your gut. And I'm curious where that came from. Well, it's really kind of you to say that. Again, imposter syndrome, right? We're surrounded by so many incredible people that we that we get our inspiration from. So like I said, it's kind of hard to pinpoint. But I think I would have to give credit to my family that really kind of put that that made me really, I think. Um, as you know, I grew up in uh, former Soviet Union. I was born in Kiev, Ukraine and lived there until I was 16. Um, but also there is like preacher history in my family. My, my grandfather was a general surgeon who was also a Jew. There's a lot of that uh, marginalization and discrimination that was happening in Soviet Union that era. He was also a surgeon in World War II. And that whole story of, and he was the most amazing, humble human being. Like, He's that person in the hospital who everybody would go to if they had a problem because they knew they would be treated well and understood and heard. So that sort of, I think, started. And then the whole thinking, again, my, my grandparents and my parents who said, you know, it's not enough to live a life. You have to figure out how to help others and how to make, it sounds silly, but how to make this world a better place. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to, it's, that's where fulfillment comes from, right? And, and now we know, you know, just kind of like our science brain, if you look at, at the literature, it's that, that helping others is where happiness drives from. If you look, we look at non-medical, psychological re happiness research, if you want to put it that way. So, of course, it's not like I did a literature search and said, okay, well, to be happy, I have to go help others. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, but it's just kind of funny how our society is like trying to figure out what makes people happy. And that's where we are. But yeah, I think I would just have to really credit my family and say, we, we have to think, we're just not living for ourselves. Like there's not much that we need. We need to figure out how to make it better for everybody. So that's probably just a small part of it, but a part that's really important to me. Thank you for sharing that. That is incredibly powerful. You gave me goosebumps. I didn't know your, your grandfather was a general surgeon. That's amazing. That story just backs up everything that I know about you. Like it just makes so much sense that that's your history. Uh, my question is, did you know your grandfather? Like, was he alive when you were growing up? Did you guys talk about any of these things? Yeah, he told me incredible stories. Um, I just wish I a, recorded them because yes. that that college student me, like, just wasn't processing it at yes. a higher level. So I really wish I either recorded it or somehow I can still talk to my dad because my dad also knows a lot of these things. But you know, one story that particularly stuck with me was he, you know, World War II was like a landmark event in the, in the former Soviet Union. So the first two years of the war, it's a five-year interval, you know, the army was really receding and the Germans were attacking. Uh, and then the, the last two years roughly was kind of the reversal of that. But during that first few years, you know, he was basically on the front lines doing trauma surgery and taking care of trauma patients. And... He was in charge of a hospital 
and, and, and you basically got it from both ends. Like you get it from the Germans because there were so many injured uh, soldiers and the army wasn't prepared to fight the war, but you also got it from the leadership. So, you know, to the point where, you know, he was telling me one story where the army leadership were saying, hey, you guys got to get it together and evacuate the hospital where you're receding. If it doesn't get done, well, whoever's in charge is going to get executed basically on site. So that was the, the world he lived in, right? And and so him trying to save those soldiers and getting them getting on the trucks that were receding in the war was, you know, just, just his way of trying to deal with the impossible situation. So that those stories really stuck with me. Like I think it was also hard for him to recall it. Of course, yeah. because that I didn't process it at the point, but it was also hard to retrieve those stories for him. But yeah, stuff, you know, things like that I really cherish and and in his memory and just in who I am. Wow. Wow, Veronica. That puts into perspective just like the realm of like pain in life and this this like these decisions that he was making real time between his patients and the leadership. I just can't even imagine what that must have felt like. And you are not alone. <laughs> I think about the stories of my grandparents. My grandparents are no longer alive either. And I'm like, why wasn't I paying more attention? You know, like my high school self and my college self. I just wish I could. I wish I wish I could go back and record those stories too. So you're you're not alone in that at all. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think we should really be paying attention to who we are, where we come from. Right? It's like that opportunity for reflection. We talk a lot about it a lot. It's not just in surgery. It's like we're who we are. So maybe. Those stories that shaped me also, well, not, not maybe, but for sure, change affect how I function at work, right? So, like, yeah. there could be either good things or it could be bad things, and I should be really be aware of them to make myself better, to make us better at what we do. And you know, it's interesting that story. Just I didn't really connect that in my brain, but it really resonates with the work that Eddie Leclerc is doing uh, on resiliency. So Eddie is a urogynecologist who also is one of my um, simulation colleagues and really mentors and inspirations. And so he has this podcast uh, I was sharing with you, it's Resiliency Rounds, where they dig into what what affects us as physicians. And he talks about this moral injury theory. It's basically PTSD that soldiers develop from being in impossible situations in the war, kind of like what my grandfather was facing. But then that also translates to other professions that are in really high stress environments, including doctors and surgeons, right? So basically, if you this is a very oversimplified version, but if you're stuck in a situation where you know there is a, quote, right thing to do, and again, that could be complicated, but let's just say there's something that you think is right and you want to do it, but you're not able to accomplish it because of other constraints that are beyond your control, then you end up with moral injury. So you can translate it into different ways, like not being able to see patients because, you know, we don't take their insurance or whatever other, you know, us having not enough resources in the OR, or it could be really a million different things. But as healthcare providers, we are not on the front lines in the middle of the World War II, but we are sort of stuck in that same realm. And that moral injury is really what's responsible for burnout. You know, of course, other aspects are important, wellness, being keeping yourself healthy, maintaining healthy relationships, but that moral injury component of it, where we're trying to engage with systems, but it's not easy to do, is is kind of what me think makes me think about that connection with my grandfather. Oh my goodness, this hits so deep, and it's it's 
interesting we're bringing this up today because my husband and I just last night were having this discussion about like lack of power that as physicians we feel that we have and the perceived power that we have by our patients a lot of times, right? And so I was talking with him about, you know, some of my patients are frustrated. They can't get into the, you know, get, can't get into the OR sooner or I'm booked out, you know, a couple of months. And I want nothing more than to help these patients. And I feel like patients, maybe, you know, even nurses or, you know, you can name any of the people within the hospital think that we have power to make change. And one big frustration for me is that I actually don't have the power to make these changes. And it is such a source of heaviness for me. So it's, it's, it's interesting that you're bringing this up and it sounds like this is like an actual written topic, right? Yeah. And uh, it's, yeah, thank you so much for really highlighting it, right? Like, this is kind of where I am as a, as a professional, I guess, at this point, like, sure, there's science of teaching, there's science of medicine, and it's really important to move science forward, but it's really deliver of care and who we are as doctors that was interests me the most, right? Like we could have the state of the art technology, but if we can't deliver it, then that's a huge problem. So of course there is implementation science that's evolving and academia starting to pay more attention to it, but it's just not at the forefront of where we are right now, especially in OBGYN. And a lot of that trickles down to us individuals. And on top of this, we feel siloed, right? Like you and I may connect about it and have a dinner conversation, but are we having a discourse about it on the larger scale? You know, are these voices getting heard? And and so I kind of started looking around and, and trying to figure out like, what are other people doing about it? And Again, just kind of like thinking back um, what got us there. Paul Farmer, uh, who wrote Mountains Beyond Mountains, it's an amazing biography book, kind of started this movement of what social determinants of health might be. And that also revolutionized medicine, right? Like before that, we're like, we're just doctors, we're coming to work, we're taking care of patients. But there's so much more going on with patients when we take care of them. But that really wasn't even discussed in medical school you know, 20 years ago. So she, he really changed that whole discourse on a national level. And another um, inspiration for me is Victor Montori. He was a pioneer in advocacy for patient-centered care. Again, not something that was at a forefront when generation of surgeons um, was growing up like me. Again, like mid-career, late 40s, early 50s. Like we are the ones who didn't quite get that more diverse experience early in our education. But he wrote this book, Why We Revolt, and he talks about this patient revolution. He really calls it revolution, which I think is interesting. And of course, uh, there was also Nancy uh, Peterson, who we interviewed on this podcast, who started Nancy's Nook. So Angela Chaudhry, who started Peer Support uh, Project, really impressive. And she has a podcast uh, on AMA talking about that. So really, I think these are little pockets of people who are trying to look at medicine from different perspectives. And I think can really validate kind of thoughts that we have and, and our, our ways of like trying to connect with each other and just, just make it better. Thank you for bringing up those really important names. And you said the exact word in my head is just validation, right? A lot of times I feel like we're feeling these things. We don't even know really what we're feeling. We just know we're feeling not optimized and frustrated, right? And sad for our patients. And so building your tribe of people who are talking about this and bringing it to the forefront. And again, getting it away from just these lunchtime talks to actual you know, movements within, within your academic center, I think are huge. So thank you for those resources. I think that's really important. 
Yeah, of course. And again, I'm not an expert at this by any means. And, and like I said, there's so much happening that we even we're not aware of. And, and unfortunately, this is quite siloed, but you're talking about systemic change, right? And, and Louis King, really, who also was on your podcast, is a pioneer of that mm-hmm. in our field. So really reading her work, Double Discrimination, The Resultant Critic, Why Gynecologic Surgery Needs Reforms are two good examples. Made me realize you know, and her mentorship is how difficult it is to change things. Of course, we know that change is hard. It takes years, it's incremental, but when you're in the middle of it, it's really hard. So I think us being connected uh, and just starting this conversation is an important point because again, you end up with moral injury and burnout and really people leaving medicine and surgery is where it's headed to. So in addition to, of course, delivery of care and quality of care. So I think it's, it's a really important conversation to have. In my mind goes to the next topic that I wasn't going to talk about until a little bit later on, but it feels like a good transition point is the power of mindset, right? And you, you've talked about this before, and, and I, I, I love the, the, the thoughts behind the power of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Right. And these are subtle differences, but they make a huge difference in really how you view the world, right? And how you lead your life and decisions that you make. And with this growth mindset, oftentimes like in like the elevator pitch, right? You're believing um, in the in that effort makes a difference. You love challenges, you have resili- resilience in the face of setbacks, where a fixed mindset, interestingly, actually values effort less because you think that you have less of an impact on your own kind of narrative, right? So I'm curious, have you ever had times when you have fallen into a fixed mindset? Because when I look at you, you are very much a growth mindset person. But have there ever been a time when you've fallen into a fixed mindset? And if yes, how did you notice that? Like, did you notice it in it? Or did you have to get out of it before you noticed it? And how did you make changes to get back into the growth mindset? Great question. Um, You know, it's interesting, the idea of like us just being able to label those things is like fairly new. So Carol Dweck wrote her book, Growth Mindset, quite a while back. And since then, there's been like multiple, quote, revisions, unquote, or different uh, addendums to her theory, because that's also evolving. Um, so it's obviously not that simple. There's somebody who is flexible and learns easily versus somebody who is stuck in their ways and can't see the big picture. So it's, it's a very complicated topic. But to narrow it down to like a really narrow slice and how, like an example of how that would apply to me, so a couple of years, maybe two years or so out of my fellowship training, I was kind of really focused on surgery and surgical education. And I was, and one of my mentors was a year gynecologist at NYU, uh, Robert Porges. He's a really giant in year gynecologic surgery. And I was just lucky enough to have him as one of my mentors. And I said, hey, I, you know, I'm really trying to get myself better. At that point, of course, I'm reading Personal Best. And one of my mentors, um, Baito Gawande, uh, it's a New Yorker article. So one of the oncologists said, hey, check this out. It sounds like you're interested in education. There's more to it than just operating. So I read Personal Best. I'm like, great, I'm going to find a surgical coach. And of course, who else could be better than Dr. Porges, who is like an amazing teacher and a surgeon. So I tell them, I say, you know, I know you're really busy, but do you mind coming to the OR to watch me operate? And then I pretty much dropped dead. So, <laughs> oh my God, I love you. So then I passed out. I myself off the floor. He, of course, said yes. 
So we did a vaginal, I did a vaginal hysterectomy, which again, that's, that's his passion. And as, as the described in person built best article, he hang out the whole case during the case, like no interruptions, just observation. Right. And then afterwards, when we debrief, he's like, yeah, um, your technique is really completely fine. There's like some things we can fine tune, but one thing that I really noticed is that you make things much easier for the trainees. He's like, you are really leading them through the case way more than I think you should. They, um, you know, autonomy is important. So like, think about what are the turning points during the case where you don't have to lay it out for them. And at that point I was like, wait, what do you mean? Like, I'm just helping them see the planes and I'm just making things easier for them. Like that's my job as a, a second assist. They're the primary surgeon. So that's a perfect example. I think of fixed mindset. Like I was just completely not aware that I was even happening. I was just plugged into my formula and I kept going. And that just seemed like the right thing to do. But when he told me like, oh yeah, like we do need to think about uh, key turning points. Like when during the surgery, surgery, do I need to stop and say resident and ask residents like, what do you want to do next? Or why did you do this? So that really kind of changed the way I think about surgery and, and teaching. And, and I think, you know, again, that was just him being in the R and saying, Hey, why are you doing this? But for me, I was totally unaware. I didn't just kept going in my in my fixed mindset formula. I love this story. I didn't realize you had I didn't realize you had a surgical coach before you and I met about surgical coaching. Veronica, you're like way ahead of the game. <laughs> well, thank you. But you know, think about it, right? Like it's so hard to do. I know because our medical system is not designed to do any of those things. I just got lucky that my mentor sent me that article, and I got lucky that Dr. Porges made himself available. But how many people do we know who had the luxury of being able to do something like that in the operating room early in their career, yeah. right? So it's just, you have to climb so many obstacles to get there. We don't make it easy to people for people. And why is that? It's not that hard, but it makes such a huge impact on who you are long-term. So many barriers. Yeah, you're exactly right. You also surface so many ideas about teaching in the operating room. And I think about this space, we talk about this in surgical coaching, about rescue versus responsibility. And where my brain goes behind this is as surgeons, as surgical educators, we don't, we don't want to see anybody struggle for multiple reasons. Like number one, right, our patients, we want everyone to have the top-notch care. But we also, it's uncomfortable for us to see learners struggle, right? We want them to do well. We want them to feel good about themselves. We want them to excel. They want, we want them to like the rotation with us and like the surgeries that we're doing. And I oftentimes find it difficult to know how much struggle I should be allowing my resident to have for all those reasons. Do you have a threshold of struggle, if you will? Does that question make sense? Yeah, 100%. Look, I think about it all the time, nonstop. Like, how do I navigate this really complicated situation, right? I don't think I have any easy answers, just uh, maybe some thoughts. And again, like I said, maybe if we have this conversation on a larger scale and involve psychometricians yeah. and psychologists, organizational psych, you know, we talk about it all the time, like we need to unsell ourselves from the surgical world. Maybe we'll have a better, more scientifically based answer. Um, but for me, you know, we talk about pre-briefing before the case. Um, finding out what people are working on, our trainees are working on, where they are in their surgical training. So that really helps in terms of the background. But also in my mind, I would break down the case into segments. Yeah. And I, I learned it from other surgeons too. 
they basically have a timeline. Okay, well, if it's a three-hour case, it's going to be challenging. Where should I be in one hour? Where should I be at a two-hour mark? And Or if you want to go by procedural milestones, like where I am. So time is one marker. Is that, you know, we know that extended operating room times um, adds to the complication risk. So we need to kind of have a timeline of our mind. That's one thing. And of course, the surgical complexity, like at what point do you say like, this is too hard for your level? And I think it's just like, it's like you said, it's so hard to objectify it, right? And, and if these things are not objective, then subjectivity brings a ton of bias and, you know, all kinds of bias. So it's not just one like thing we're tackling. So that just becomes, I think, really challenging. For me personally, like one thing I I find helpful is really just simulation training. Like if I can't deliver like the the type of experience in the operating room because of constraints like time, for instance, then I can make up for it outside um, of the operating room. So simulation, it just reminded me because like we were doing a dissection and uh, laparoscopy lab last week. And it was such an amazing experience. Like it's so safe. We can do such advanced dissections. And that factor of, you know, patient safety, timestamps, procedural complexity is just not there. So, you know, I think for me personally, at least it's just one way to say, okay, if I can't, if I can't do this in the specific like case and, and hit all the learned objectives for you in this one case, and I can make up for it outside there. Of course, it's not the same, but not being able to utilize resources that science brought us already is just one struggle, of course. And, you know, Brian Brost, he's an amazing, he's one of my mentors. He's an MFM who basically pioneered like learning curves um, in OBGYN procedures. When we're having these conversations, like, well, how does simulation fit into training? Is like simulation science has already gotten there. And the past 10 years, like, we have enough studies where we can put our curriculum together and teach our OBGYN residents all they need to know in residency in a year and a half. If, you know, if we're giving the freedom to concentrate learning in a way that it makes sense scientifically, we can get everybody through to competency level in much shorter time with a lot less risk. And, you know, we talk about uh, going to other kind of like these futuristic simulation conversations. Yes, the science is already there, but it's like I said, implementation and other constraints make it hard for us. But again, I don't have any easy answers. I wish I really did. But I think simulation is one thing that can help us and our trainees to fine tune their surgical experience. You're making me think about this. Again, this is like so multifaceted, but I feel like a lot of at least the learners that I work with really just want to do everything. Like they come to the case and they want to do everything in the case. And that's where their primary learning is, right? We talk about simulation and we maybe do it once a month, if that, right? Then they go off into nights and OB and then they don't do maybe a laparoscopic cuff closure for seven months, right? And one major issue that I have is just continuity of my learner. And I know I hear this a lot. And people oftentimes say, you know, I'm a PGY4, so I, you know, I'm ready to close the cough. Well, I'll let a PGY1 close the cough if I just have you for a continuous amount of time, right? It's not a year. It's not like post-grad year. It's just continuity, which you're making me think we need so much more outside of the OR. Like the OR is just part of it, but simulation and surgical coaching, right? That makes such a big difference. And what I have found in my OR is that when I have surgical coaching sessions about specific procedures, right, uterolysis or modified RAD, finally uterine at its origin, 
doing coaching outside the OR, that makes such a big difference in the OR. But we need to be building that into a sustainable curriculum, not just like spot treating it. Don't you think? That's exactly it. So it's kind of like drive-by learning, um, as I would call it. Um, it, it. It lacks continuity. It lacks systematic approach. And without that comprehensive, like evidence-based learning approach to learning, we, we're not going to get there. I mean, it makes sense. Or like, if you think about it, the educational structure, if you <laughs> read about the science of surgery, like I was reading this amazing book about William Halstead, evolved with like, what, 150 years ago? But there's so little change to that structure. Like that's where we are with surgical education. <laughs> um, so obviously it's complicated and it's, it's, it's like, you can write a, like a book about it as, as people would say, like, this is a complicated topic, write a book to really be fair and, and cover all the complicated things that go into that formula. But without that change in educational structure, we can't incorporate evidence-based learning. So there's just a few simple things you pointed out. Like we learn so much faster if we have a continuous experience or frequent shorter intervals of learning, shorten your learning curve. Like that's just like so simple. The other thing, science of surgery evolved, right? So now you're doing a 3000 gram uterus laparoscopically. Well, 20 years ago, you were doing this open. So your educational structure evolved based on that open surgery experience, or maybe you're doing like a lower complexity case laparoscopically. You know, that that 12-week size adenomyotic uterus is not the same thing as the three kilo uterus, right? So in your hysterectomy, a high complexity case, you have, you know, not two, probably three or four hysterectomies combined in one. So when you look at ACGME comp competencies in terms of logging your cases as 50% of the case, so you logged in a TLH if you did half of that hysterectomy, you logged in actually three hysterectomies or however many you want to say. And same applies to other procedures, right? So I think it, it's complicated, but yeah, you're right. Without that structure, we can't deliver high quality education experience to our residents. And it becomes, you know, we do our best of what we have, but it's not organized, unfortunately. Unfortunately. I mean, we could talk forever about that. I hear you. And I'm thinking about like... And we don't have to dive into this a lot, but Cleveland Clinic, we have a lot of tracking, right? Which means that we're not dependent on residents. We have a lot of mid-levels. And when you're not dependent on residents, then they can shift where they where they feel like they need to be, right? We can build those things in. But a lot of, like most programs in the country, they, they can't, they depend on residents to take care of patients. And so they don't have that freedom to kind of fill in the needs of each specific adult learner, right? Exactly. So it all has to do with implementation science yeah. and resource utilization, right? On one hand, of course, you want to keep residency criteria and requirements generic so it can apply to many different programs. It makes perfect sense, but it also creates other challenges. So, you know, Cleveland Clinic is exceptional because it's so focused on resident education and tracking that you have implemented is really revolutionary. So many people talk about it. But what does it mean when it comes down to other programs, right? Like, how do we take that model? What are the barriers to implementation? So that just becomes really challenging. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's an important conversation to have, but the devil's in the details. <laughs> like, in theory, it's like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And you would operationalize it and you're like, wait, I can't do this. Yeah, I hear you. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to take a quick moment and just talk about CMS, right? The Center for, for Medical Simulation. You alluded to it earlier. I don't know if a lot of our listeners know exactly what this center actually is. 
I didn't really even know about it until I met you back at Columbia, like whatever that was, eight years ago. And when I saw you talk about simulation, I was like, holy cow, like you are on a whole entire different level. And I have my master's in medical education and we didn't even dive into these type of things. So can you just take a moment to talk about what is CMS and what can it offer? And if people want to become like uh, become integrated with this center, how do you do that and what does that mean? Yeah, of course. Um, so CMS was really kind of the brains behind simulation science. And that evolution really was started by Jenny Rudolph, who is an organizational psychologist, uh, along with Dan Reamer and Robert Simon, and also the founder of CNS, who is an anesthesiologist. And Roseanne Gardner is um, an OBGYN partner who is active at CMS right now. But the idea, so it kind of grew out of uh, anesthesia, really as a specialty, ICU uh, and uh, emergency room physicians um, incorporated themselves into that crew pretty quickly. And it had to do with crew resource management, like team steps, if you want to think about that way, like flight, flight science is like, if there's an emergency on the plane, how do you handle it? How do you utilize your resources? So all those things like situational awareness, teamwork and communication, mutual support, all of those basic principles are kind of tied into the emergency or crisis resource management, basically, if you want to put it that way. But of course, there was science behind it, right? So it, that had to be developed and that had to be operationalized. So that, that debriefing formula, and you can apply it also to actual clinical scenarios, and that's where this is all going now too. But this team basically developed the advocacy inquiry molecule is what we yes, call it. Yeah. So um, just a quick example. You know, let's just say you're um, in a postpartum hemorrhage scenario. I'm just going to use something really straightforward. And the patient is in stage three hemorrhage. It's uterine apnea. And in this case, um, the team leader didn't call for a massive transfusion protocol when patient was on three, stage three hemorrhage and that resulted in delay. So you're debriefing the scenario and you see that there's obvious delay there. And But how do you ask what's going on? Like, why did that happen? How do you understand that? So if you just say, hey, what happened there, there's a five minute delay, you're not going to get an answer as to why that actually happened. Because people may not be comfortable talking about it, but more importantly, probably just not even aware. Exactly. So another way to get to it is this advocacy inquiry technique, which is, I saw that patient was in stage three hemorrhage. There was a five minute delay in activating MTP. I know that activating MTP early results in improved patient outcomes and it helps to mobilize the blood bank sooner. What's up with that? Or what's been happening at the time? Or what was running through your mind? So that inquiry or curiosity, uh, as people call it, really helps to get the conversation going. And, and the person may reply, oh, I wasn't really aware that was happening because I was concentrated on getting a battery balloon in or checking it it plays in with ultrasound or something like that. I didn't real, realize the vital signs were there. Or it might be something like, oh, well, I thought calling blood bank early means that all this blood is going to be wasted because FFP is, is going to be unthought. Or you can get a whole slew of different answers, but you wouldn't really get to the meat of it until you ask it in the specific way where where person on the spot, so to speak, feels comfortable talking about it or just even gets an opportunity to reflect. So that's just like kind of a key example of where that came from. And then of course, they also operationalize it. So the Pearl's debriefing where you uh, assure psychological safety, where you organize your debrief so it doesn't kind of travel all over the place and make sure you hit your learn objectives to make sure that you conclude and have take home lessons and things like that. So 
that was really sort of revolutionary at the time. And as a result, the CMS is nonprofit. So they started running uh, simulation instructor courses. And it, it's basically like a simulation bootcamp. It's now they have different versions of it. But at the time when I took it, it was a one week course. And again, I credit Damien Shield for rerouting me in that direction. But you basically immersed in the most intense experience of your life. It really changes how you think. Speaking of growth mindset, it really breaks down a lot of those fixed mindset things that you have because it all comes out and really just gets you a lot of practice, right? Simulation. It's like you're learning simulation through simulation. It's like debriefing of a debrief of a debrief. It, it can really mess with your mind. But anyway, you get sort of like deep into that part of it, but it changes how you operate, like how you think about your interactions with people, how you structure your learning sessions. Um, so it really just just goes really deep. So yeah, it, there's other obviously entities right now that, that teach simulation and the societies have grown, exploded really exponentially, but that's kind of how it started. That was a brilliant summary. And I think all of our listeners can appreciate that a debrief is not a debrief is not a debrief, right? I, I oftentimes have people come and say, you know, I'll come debrief with you. But someone who understands debrief, like like a real structured scaffolded debriefing session, there's so much that goes into it, right? Because if you just go to the what's, like you said, you're not getting to the why's for the learner to understand their actions. And then unless they understand the why, they're not going to make sustainable change in their practice. And so these questions are so, like, they're thoughtful and they're deliberate. For sure. And then, you know, it also translates into other situations, right? So if you uncover it, it's called an internal frame. Then it's not going to be just that postpartum hemorrhage that they're going to apply to. Next time they're in a different emergency, they'll use the same technique to deal with whatever challenge they're facing. So it's it's translatable to other situations. Um, and there is, of course, a whole science behind it. And the simulation really works if it's done right. So that's where the simulation science is really going right now is understanding the right way to apply it under what circumstances does it work, what doesn't work. So really fine tuning those things. But yeah, the basic principle is that there's a science behind it and we really need to be aware of it. Well, and Don't try it at home though, because if you come home and there's dirty, dirty dishes in the sink and you're like, I see the dirty dishes in the sink. I know that they should not be there. What's up? Do not do that. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. I call it like the observation opinion question and I've tried it on my husband. It does not work well. He's like, stop all that yeah. coaching debriefing stuff on me. It's true. Yeah, it, it's not. It doesn't work. You have to use a different framework. <laughs> it's so true. But I will include all the links for, for CMS in our show notes today. And like you said, Veronica, there's a lot of different institutions out there that are doing this. But I think for anyone who is invested in surgical education or is with learners, this is a must. Like this is a complete mindset shift, like you said, that's going to change the way you teach, the, change the way you learn. It's really, it's really, uh, really important and hi highly impactful. Okay, I have one last, one last space. I know we're getting short on time, Veronica, but I, I have one last space I want to dive in with you because I'm just curious of your answers <laughs> to this. But it's around the idea of leadership. So you've talked a lot about different mentors that you've had in your life, big transition points. And at this point in your career, you've had many different leaders, right? You've had different jobs. You've transitioned to be under different leadership, different sponsors, different mentors. And you yourself are a mentor for a lot of different learners out there. And I'm just curious, through, through your experience of working with leaders that were just amazing humans, right? Highly impactful. I'm curious, what does true leadership look like to you?
you? That's a tough question. <laughs> I don't have any easy answers. I think what I would appreciate the most in a leader, and that's, I guess, just my personal take on it, is just like being honest and acknowledging the problem. For me, the hardest thing is, is when we sweep something under the table and it's just like the problem gets ignored and it's like not really there. Even if my, my leader or my superior or whoever I'm working with can't fix the problem, I totally get it. Look, I know I don't have, like no one has a magic wand and they can just like wave it and fix everything. That just does not exist. But if they just tell me like, look, I totally... I'm heard, like, I hear you, this is really important. And I may or may not be able to help you with this. That's just like, does so much for a person. It validates them. It makes them feel heard. I don't know exactly under what technique of leadership that falls through. Like, I don't have the, the language to like label things in this question, really. But I think just that honesty and being open and being honest with your team is really what I look for. Um, again, I, if, you know, difficult situations, like maybe just be difficult as they are, but honesty is probably what I appreciate the most. And, you know, another, another role model for me, at least in the simulation world has been Komal Bajaj. She's um, a simulationist and an activist who um, is now quality and safety officer at a city hospital in New York city. And she really was, you know, my mentor in terms of what leadership might look like. And speaking of growth mindset, she is incredibly flexible. So it's it's another thing that uh, that really admiring people is like we're up against a real problem here. Yes, we acknowledge it, but like, are there any other ways? Are there any innovative ways to fix the problem? And so I think that thinking outside the box, being flexible, and being honest is what I really appreciate in people. At least you know people that I interface with. So I think it's just probably a small like personal take on it, but it, it's an important one to me. I love that. And you know, and you know, you say that you don't have the right words for this. No, you're I, the way leaders make you feel like that's the true impact, right? Like, are they bringing out the best in you? And are they making you feel psychologically safe? Right? And so what I'm hearing you say is being vulnerable and transparent and honest goes farther than just saying things that they think that you may want to hear, right? I mean, and I, I, I think also what I'm hearing you say is this area of flexibility, and this comes up with what you said 45 minutes ago when you said when you go to your fellows or your residents and you say, what's your three-year plan? What's your five-year plan? I think it's so important to say those things out loud, even put them in writing, but understand that sometimes, okay, I'll, almost all the time, you're going to have to flex, right? You're going to have to be flexible with things that, that come at you. And so having um, that nimbleness also is really important in a leader. Yeah, for sure. And, and then to mind comes like one short story we can probably just kind of close with, but I was yeah. reading a business leadership book or, or an article. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they were basically describing, by the way, it's interesting to read like business literature and yes. leadership. Um, there's so many different books that Deal with that i'm like huh interesting that's what people do and business world they're in yeah. corporate america like that totally applies to us but we're so silent from that we're not tapping into our organizational psychology or the science of it but i was reading a case study of a company that was failing they were going bankrupt whatever they were doing wasn't wrong they just didn't have the market or whatever other external factor it was completely out of their control and it was a pretty large team but basically the business was going under but the person who was in charge, the leader of the company, made this like downward fall so 
enjoyable is not the right word, but like so meaningful for the team that was invested in this business that at the end, when the company actually shut down and people lost their jobs, like they had a party. They had a party because they worked so hard and so well together during this downfall that that was like the one of the most meaningful experiences at work for them like now they were basically without a job and had to start their careers over and they're having a party celebrating themselves yeah and their leader so that really struck with me it's like that honesty of what's happening and that mutual support that came from way above is yeah is like that story really struck me so i kind of you know, that's, that's, that's kind of like that feeling that I look for in difficult situations from my leadership. I love that story. And that just goes down to the true culture of an organization, right? You can't teach that. That's not just words. Culture is so much deeper than that. Where the circumstances change, what's that concrete foundation that ties everybody together? That's a, that's a great example. For sure. And, and I think that sense of the community is what, you know, Angela um, Chaudhry talks about it a lot, that sense of community I think peer support is oversimplifying it because it's really just changing culture, but it's that sense of the community on different levels that that we're looking for, you know, in our struggle with burnout and challenges that the healthcare is facing. So I'm really excited to see what's to come in the future. Veronica, this has been the best hour ever. You've exceeded all expectations. Very kind. <laughs> I have one request. What? Uh, Terry Gross of SGS IEU needs to get interviewed too, right? So yes. Who is going to unscrub Tara King? <laughs> you are so ridiculous. <laughs> I love you. You are the you are a shining star. So who is going to interview Tara King, the celebrity? Oh, stop it! Will you stop? But <laughs> I I truly am so thankful for your kind words. I'm thankful for your time. I know you are so busy but your brain is such a magical place. So thank you for inviting us in. Thank you for being so vulnerable and transparent. I just am so lucky to know you, Veronica. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, for your kindness and for your friendship. You're welcome. All right, friend. Thank you so much. Have a great day operating. Love you. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Bye. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the featured clinicians and do not necessarily reflect the views of CMR Surgical or included advertisers or sponsors.